Hi, welcome along to Steve Brace True Crime Podcast. Delighted to see I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Robin Perry. How are you, Robin? I'm good, thanks. Good, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to have you on, mate. And uh, some of the regular viewers who watch uh, everything on our channel will remember Robin was uh, giving us his uh, online reports from um, Ukraine, and uh, we'll thank him for that. And uh, he's now, uh, as well as his daytime job as a journalist, put pen to paper with the new book, and it is called... I'm the Yorkshire Ripper, Conversations with a Killer, and this is co-written with Alfie James. So uh, we're going to talk about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and um, it's uh, it's a case which which fascinates many, many people, and, and obviously something that, as a 50-year-old, as I actually lived through as well. And um, just first of all, you know, why did you decide to, to do this book, Robin? Well, it's um, it's it, you've sort of hit the nail in the head with your own experience, really. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. It's a story which I've always been fascinated with. I'm one or two years older than you. Um, I grew up on um, up on Teesside, just north of of Yorkshire, um, but close enough for the story to to be never present, really. So, growing up through the the late 1970s, it was something you were always aware of. Every few months, it seemed that. Um, on the breakfast news before you you listened to the radio before you went to school there was a report of sadly yet another another attack and then the police would confirm it was the work of the yorkshire ripper and um and became kind of like a bogeyman of our sort of childhood really it was something we all everyone feared that the next time he would attack might be in our region and and that that sort of stayed with me um after school i went to leeds to study at the university there and then um got a job as a journalist on a couple of local papers in in leeds and near leeds working with reporters who, who were a you know a good few years older and had actually um reported on the case right from day one so that that obviously fascinated me as well and and so as i say it's something that's um that's that's always been there one of the cases i've been most interested in and and then a, a few years ago a good few about 10 years ago now I, I met alfie through through doing other stories on the yorkshire ripper and um and it became apparent that he he had this huge uh, library of raw material really thanks to the re relationship he developed with um peter Sutcliffe, which I, I think we'll probably go into a bit more in depth um later on the chat but um he developed this relationship and acquired this huge amount of material from him and was just wasn't really sure about what he was going to do with it um and it through discussions with alfie it became apparent it was kind of obvious that that formed the foundation of of this um this biography of peter Sutcliffe. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the man himself, and um, let's go back to his childhood first and foremost. And um, he was raised by a loving mum, but an abusive dad, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It was a, a real stark contrast, really, between um, his two parents. So he was he was born in um, June nineteen forty six in a maternity hospital in in um, Bingley and Shipley, and he spent the vast majority of his childhood growing up in Bingley, it's a market town close to Bradford. Um, and he's, uh, he's yeah brought up by dad John and mum Kathleen, um, and as I say, there was a real marked difference in the way they parented. Basically, dad John was he was an abusive, absent parent, really neglectful. He didn't pay much attention to to his wife or his children. He could be violent. Um, he was a, a drinker, a, a womanizer, and basically spent all his money um, in the pub um, and, and on himself. Really, given very little. Um, or only just enough to 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 his wife to care for their their increasing family. There was 
Peter was one of six or one of seven rather, but his um, one brother died within a few days of being born. So there's six kids, three boys, three girls, grown up in a in a very loud, raucous, um, raucous household. The abuse that he suffered. I mean, I, I've done a lot of true crime podcasts, and I often find that what lies at the heart of a, a criminal is is trauma. Do you think that had anything to do with the offending that he went on to commit? Yeah, it, I mean, possibly. Again, I think we'll probably just chat more in depth about the motivations uh, in, in a short time. But um, yeah, um, very possibly. I mean, Sutcliffe himself denied that. He sort of said that um, despite all the, the difficulties growing up and the, the abuse his father meted out to the children, he, he says he actually had a, an enjoyable childhood. And, and certainly with his mother, he was incredibly close to his mother. And that was something his father resented as well, actually. His father kind of resented Peter, partly because of how close he was um, to his mother, his, his, his dad just felt he just wasn't wasn't a manly enough child, which is a crazy thing to say given how young he was. But um, um, so there was trauma there in relation to his father. Did it have anything to do with his future offending? Sutcliffe him said 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 not, and and he made the point that um, for all there was abuse there, his, his brothers Mick and Carl um, suffered worse abuse. His father would beat them with. With his hands and his belt and he he was physical sometimes with peter but not quite as bad as with the other two only uh perform at school i mean did was he was he a good scholar not particularly he had a talent for art um and he, he wasn't he wasn't lacking in some degree of intelligence but but you know school just wasn't for him really he left at 15 with with no qualifications whatsoever but of course that was um so that was in the early 60s at uh, in a time when there was a huge number of um, engineering firms and mills and that kind of thing along the um the valley where he grew up so he, he didn't want for work he got a very a variety of jobs um despite his lack of qualifications um but going back to school another marked aspect was his, his lack of ability really to click with any particular friendship group he was a bit of a loner um some there's another aspect his, his father sort of annoy his father's inability to make um any particular strong friendship groups and it, would, it would be quite a long time before he sort of really seemed to um develop that ability to sort of be part of a part of a wider group one constant in his life um because he met her quite young as well of course was sonia Sutcliffe. tell us a little bit about how they met yeah, it's it's a, it is a fascinating aspect of the whole story. So they met in a pub called Fisherman's Cove. It was a little discotheque that had been kind of a pub that had been turned into a discotheque. And by that time, uh, Peter was working as a grave digger at Bingley Cemetery, and and he'd finally sort of got in with a group of colleagues who who thought he was okay, who didn't think he was a weird loner. So he sort of like developed this friendship group, friendship group with them and they would have regular nights out to this pub and they developed um, one little corner into their own um, little area that they call Grave Diggers Corner in this um, pub. Um, he was 20 at the time, um, 1920. Uh, Sonia was 15, 16. There was four years difference and she came in with her um, elder sister one night. Um, they told... Um, her, their father uh, was very strict um, that they were going to a classical musical uh, or an opera, I think, um, but that actually were sort of heading out to to do what a lot of teenagers want to do at that age is to, to go to the disco. And um, Peter and Sonia got chatting and they they clicked and it was the start of, a, of a, an incredible relationship, really, which um, despite everything that happened in the future and despite them getting divorced, that relationship continued until the day he died. 
Yeah, quite a, quite an amazing uh, relationship, and, and you know, one as you say, which which went on so long. Um, I notice in, in in you know the the notes that you sent us about the book, you mentioned a row that took place between them that led to his first attack. What was that? Yeah, that's that's a really significant event, and it's it's sort of kicks the book off really. Chapter one is all about the um, Peter was was head over heels. He was really in love. That they, they were engaged, and and he was convinced that Sonia felt the same way about him. But he then discovered, thanks to his brother Mick, who had seen her driving through uh, Bingley in a sport white sport top sports car with an Italian businessman who ran an ice cream firm. Um, Peter refused to believe that um, anything might be going on or she might be growing close or becoming friendly with another man. He asked around, he discovered the truth that, you know, that Sonia had uh, become friendly with this guy. So he confronted her. Um, he sort of wanted to know what was going on um, and, and why she she had become friendly with another guy. Um, this confrontation just went from bad to worse. He ended up having a huge row in the streets. And... Um, and she stormed off, he stormed off. And then he developed this idea in his mind um, that in this sort of increasingly twisted mind, um, he'd been hearing the voices for a few years by now and his increasingly twisted mind, he came up with this idea that to get his revenge on what he, um, in his mind thought Sonia was doing to him, he would do the same back to her. And that's when he um, first went to pick up a street um, sex worker in the red light area in Bradford. Um, this woman took him took him back to a room she used to take clients back to. Um, he quickly had second thoughts. Um, they had a row um, over the money, and when um, he'd given her a tenner, she was charging a fiver. So she ne he needed a fiver change, and to get that fiver, she took him back to a garage on Manningham Lane or Lum Lane in the red light district. And um, two guys came out from the garage armed with spanners and tried to attack him. He drove his car at them. It was just a sort of nightmare scenario. And in his mind, this sort of thing, this, this disturbed mind was sort of building and building. And this did help develop the idea that um, sex workers were, were his target. He had to sort of take action against sex workers because it was all tied up with this crumbling nature of his, of his relationship with Sonia, which was um, resurrected. They got back together. She, 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 she stopped becoming, she stopped sort of seeing this Italian guy and her and Peter went on to get married. But by now it was set in his mind, this idea that um, to him, action had to be taken about against this group of um, women in society that he thought he saw were a problem. Mm, yeah, fascinating. Never heard that uh, particular story before. You mentioned hearing voices. You know, when did he first started hearing voices? Yeah, so that was in the mid '60s when he'd been working at the cemetery for a for a while, and it was one particular day. It was cloudy. It was starting to rain, and he's in this grave in the Catholic section of Bingley Cemetery, digging a grave on his own, and he is what sounds to him like a strange noise, kind of not really sort of formulated as an actual voice at that stage. Seems so weird like echoey kind of sound and there um him and a few of his colleagues were really they were very, very keen practical jokers they were constantly make, playing practical jokes against each other and of course the cemetery is ripe for that kind of thing to try and scare each other he was convinced that um this sound was one of his work colleagues playing a practical joke on him so he climbs out the grave um and looks around he can't see anyone it's starting to rain a bit heavier now he looks around walks around some graves and he realizes this sound seems to be coming from a particular grave of a polish man called bronislaw sapolsky 
he walks over and it's quite a grand um, looking headstone, uh, white cross on a plinth. And these voices seem to be coming out of it. He described them as an echo and they were coming out of them. And, um, and this happened again and again. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell Sonia. He didn't tell his mother. And they were the two people he was closest to in the world. It was his secret. And over the coming weeks and months, these kind of um, formed into a more specific kind of voice that he kind of understand, could understand. It was, it was kind of like a, a radio, which is out of tune and starting to come into tune. And all of a sudden, he started to hear this voice. And as he would say it, um, the, this voice, he kind of started to in, um, realize in his mind that he thought it was a voice from God. And this voice from God started telling him that he had to kill prostitutes. Wow. Unbelievable, isn't it? To, to think that that was, you know, in his, in his own mind, how it, it started. You talk yeah. about two incidents which you say raise, raised the serious questions over his claimed voices that drove him to kill. Uh, tell us about that victim number seven, I think, Yvonne Pearson. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's um, so yeah, there's two aspects which are sort of fascinating, really, in the whole case. So there's very much when it when it got to his trial, there was very much a split between the medical experts and and the police and the prosecution as to whether um, whether he was uh, the, the motivation for the attacks were you know a men mental Ill illness, paranoid schizophrenia, or whether he was just putting it on, whether he sort of lied to the doctors to kid them that he was suffering from some mental illness and and the were an entire fiction um it, over the long term ultimately the um the medical um world won obviously because he got um transferred to broadmoor and spent his entire life there and the, the medical world throughout his life were at one that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia now um you know i'm not a medical professional and I, i'm, I'm you know, i've got a few different thoughts and opinions about that but i wouldn't necessarily disregard their opinions completely however there are two incidents which um raise huge question marks over whether that mental illness was the main driver. So with his attacks, um, there was always a period, like a build-up, if you like, where he was hearing the voices for a period of probably days, maybe weeks, and he was kind of becoming primed to, to, to act, to kill. Now, with Yvonne Pearson in January of 1978, who, as you say, seventh victim, he was driving along Lum Lane on the way home from work, and she stepped out in front of his car. He hadn't been having the voices, he wasn't being primed, she just stepped out, he wound the window down, um, and she said, are you looking for business? He suddenly thought, wow, this is fate, um, and he decided to kill her there and then. He just decided to kill her. Um, so she gets in his car, they drove off to some nearby wasteland, and he attacked her and killed her. So this wasn't, as, like, unlike all of the others, um, he wasn't being primed, in his words, by his mental illness, which built. It was a case of... Um, uh, he, he, it's almost like he had self-will. He was exhibiting self-will to, to to make that decision himself, which undermines the idea that the only motivating factor was his mental illness. Um, the other case, the other factor is the previous victim, uh, number six, Jean Jordan, who he murdered in Manchester in um, October of the previous year, 1977. Now he killed her at some allotments uh, next to a cemetery to the south of the city. And as he drove away, he realised that he'd left a potentially vital clue, which was a brand new £5 note, which he'd been given his wages just a few days before the previous Thursday. And he was wise enough to know that um, if it's brand new £5 note, it was, hadn't gone through the system, it could potentially be traced through his employer to him. And, and, he, and he, was, he was absolutely right. That would become a, a crucial, one of the most crucial lines of inquiry the police would embark on. So nine days later, 
he realised he had to do something about this. So he basically drove back across to Manchester in a forensically aware frame of mind to try and recover this £5 note and, you know, make sure the police didn't um, uncover a, a vital clue. He was unable to find the um, the um, the fiver. It was actually in a secret pot pocket um, within a handbag, which he'd thrown away from the scene. Um, and he could never find it, couldn't recover it. And he sort of like, he ended up in a frenzy that night. He was so angry that he sort of like, he, he attacked the body again. He'd been lying there for nine days, and but he attacked it again. So she was left in it in a terrible, terrible condition. Um, short time later, um, somebody working at the allotment found the handbag, handed it to the police. The police found the fiver. And it was, it was as I say, a critical investigation. They came very close to, to, to tracking him down. Um, to over that and he actually was interviewed one of the number of times that he was interviewed by police when they failed to arrest him uh, and it was a huge inquiry and it got it did it did get close to um to, to to pinpointing who the killer was but it didn't it failed but again that was um a, a, an example of where um it seemed it certainly seemed clear to, to seems clear to me that you know, he'd spent the entire intervening period between killing her and going return to the scene nine days um and he clearly wasn't in a psychotic state through that nine days he was he was acting as the prosecution said at the trial just like any criminal acts to try and avoid capture um which clearly doesn't seem to be the um the product of a mental illness it's a product of a criminal mind trying to evade arrest mm. why do you think he killed robin it's a, it's a, it is a hugely, a hugely complicated um, area, and it's it's the longest chapter in the book, and in many ways, it's my favourite area of the, my favourite chapter of the book, and it's it's one of the um, one of the reasons that it sort of drives my interest really in, in in working out why why he killed her. So there's a, there's a variety of competing theories. Many many theories over the years have been posted. Um, the, the ones that were aired at his trial was that he was a sexually motivated killer, that he got some sort of thrill from it, that the prosecution claimed was the case. The opposing view from the defence was that it was purely the case. It was a mentally, um, it was a product of his mental illness. Um, personally, I, I think there probably was some kind of mental illness there. Um, however, I, I can't accept that he was, um, that it was, the, it was the only motivating factor. Um, if that was the case, then after many years treatment at Broadmoor, the medical um, experts considered that they brought it under control to the extent that he was able to be transferred back to Franklin in 2016. Mm -hmm. However, he continued to have, despite that he was always desperate to be seen as a good person, despite as what he'd done, he was he considered the attacks were um, the product of a mental illness in a short period of his life, and, and he could kind of pack them away in a little box that he didn't have to take responsibility for. He didn't. He didn't own his crimes. They were. They were the 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 the. the, the the cause of his mental illness through those five years he is a person peter suckler throughout his life was a good person but some of the stuff he said to alfie over the years um clearly suggested there was some badness there if you like he would make fun of his victims he would accuse the survivors or relatives of his the people the women who didn't survive as being publicity seekers he would say some awful things and if if he was a man who would just done terrible acts through five years because of a mental illness, many years later, when it was under control, he wouldn't say horrible things about his victims. He would be appalled at what he'd done and spend every day regretting it. And that just wasn't how he came across at all. So I think there's got to be, as well as potentially some mental illness there, there was some, some something in, in him, if we want to call it evil, we'll call it evil, whatever. But there was some innate badness in him that, that, that was a, there's a prime 
motivation as well, I feel. Obviously, he, he did go to prison, but then, you know, ended up in Broadmoor Hospital, somewhere where I visited, of course, when mm. uh, I visited the uh, the infamous Ronnie Cray for mm. a five-year period between 1990 and 1995. So he obviously spent time not only in Broadmoor with Ronnie Cray, but but some other famous uh, or infamous names. Yeah, that's and... right. Yeah. Tell, tell, yeah. Us, tell us a little yeah. bit about them. Yeah, over the years, I mean, he, he came across, I, I guess, you know, some of the, 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 the all the ones we would know for the headlines in Parkhurst in the first prison he was at after his conviction. He he spent some time with Ian Brady and they had a particular strange relationship. They didn't know each other that well or or spend a lot of time together, but um, they spent some time together in Parkhurst. They played chess together and Sutcliffe claimed he won. <laughs> and then in many years later, um, they had this strange battle as to who was the most high profile. And Brady did some interviews where he claimed he was the high, most high profile killer in the country and seemed to take some kind of um, um, plus from that. Sutcliffe thought this was a ridiculous um, thing to say. And why would anyone claim to be the highest profile? But he then couldn't help himself. And he would go on to sort of um, to claim that he was more high profile than Brady. So that was sort of some strange, weird relationship. Um, he, he, he met both of the Cray twins, um, Reggie and Parkhurst, and then, as you say, Ronnie and Broadmoor. And it's an interesting, as a bit of an aside, an interesting controversial aspect of, of our book is that Sutcliffe claims that him and Ronnie actually got on okay together. And when the book came out, I know some people who've read into the, the Cray story a lot um, weren't very happy at that idea because, um, um, you know, Ronnie um, and Reggie were sort of said to have put a contract out on him. Um, and he was, uh, as you can see some pictures there, he was attacked a couple of times in, in Broadmoor. Clearly some people didn't... Um, didn't like the you know the idea of sharing um, sharing the hospital with Sutcliffe, and they took the the matter into his own hands. Um, in in later years, um, when he was transferred at Franklin, he was on the same wing as Ian Huntley, who was the um, who murdered the two schoolgirls in Soham, and also Levi Belfield, uh, who. Um, uh, the Millie Dowler killer, um, and he, Sutcliffe particularly didn't like Levi Belfield. He didn't trust him at all. Um, Belfield, but Belfield claims that they were they were friends. So there's yet again, there's another sort of strange interaction between different high-profile killers, and perhaps one of the um, uh, the the strangest. Um, uh, friends that he made was Charles Taylor, the African dictator who was done at the International Court in The Hague a few years ago. And as part of the agreements, the international agreement to bring him to justice for, for genocide and war crimes um, was that the UK would take um, Taylor and he would serve his time here um, uh, in, in this country. And he was ended up in Franklin in Durham, slightly weirdly. And, and probably because of their similar age, Peter Sutcliffe and Charles Taylor became best of mates. And um, and Sutcliffe would sort of make comments about, um, you know, how he's, how he, despite the fact he's in for genocide, he seems like a good bloke and lends me his TV listings magazine. So a bit of an insight into how the, the horrific big picture stuff that they get convicted for interacts with the mundane day to day. One man who, of course, evaded conviction, but uh, is, is nonetheless infamous for heinous crimes is this man. And uh, yeah. he spent a little bit of time with Jimmy Savile in Broadmoor. He did indeed, yeah. They they, they became um, particularly close, um, probably because of the Yorkshire connection. Of course, Jimmy Savile lived in Leeds, um, and he, he lived in a quite a well-to-do, exclusive apartment block in Roundhay Park. He had the penthouse suite there, um, right where uh, just yards away from where 
um, Sutcliffe um, killed Irene Richardson, his third victim. And uh, Saville was actually interviewed by the police about that um, case as a potential witness. Um, so that's one sort of strange coincidence. But yes, um, Saville, as is commonly known uh, these days now, he's uh, he had a, he had a um, very high profile um, and a kind of self-appointed role as the, as the unofficial entertainments manager of Broadmoor. He had access to all the wards. He had his own apartment there. And, and you know, the bosses at the time, you know, they, they liked the cachet of having someone a celebrate like Saville um, associated with them. And, you know, sadly, he abused that um, freedom to abuse some patients in Broadmoor. Um, but when it all came out after his death, as to what actually he had been up to all these years. Sutcliffe just refused to believe it. He just so he, he couldn't accept that his old mate Jimmy Savile would be um was guilty of such heinous crimes. And 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 even when the evidence was so overwhelming that even he had to admit he might have done one or two of these things in his mind, he, he could never accept that he'd um that he was um was guilty of such a horrific um litany of abuse that we all now know that Savile was. Obviously, you've worked the beat in uh, the northeast for, for for many years now for the Sun newspaper, and um, I think one of the most intriguing things about this whole case was, of course, the, the you know the the tapes, the tapes that were sent to you know the the, the police officers at the time, and um, poor old George. I mean, he looks sick as a chip here, and um, things things just went from bad to worse for George when those tapes landed on his desk, and he moved the entire investigation from where it should have been focused up to the northeast and in particular we aside and it wasn't until years later we found out that it was this man uh, mr humble who had uh, sent in these hoax tapes and duly served a little bit of bird for it but what you know what 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 did Sutcliffe, if anything make of that whole scenario was i, I presume he must have been delighted yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and and, and he, he he viewed it was a gift from god literally he sort of thought god was directing um, somebody else to send him these letters and to, and to misdirect the police um investigation which of course arguably potentially cost a few women their lives you know um, there was a few murders in the time that the um, police uh, case was directed up towards we saw but it was a, it was a fascinating aspect of the case and i guess any case as large as this is going to have different strands to it which increase its fascination for true crime um people interested in true crime and so yeah there was so there was three letters were sent um uh one um one to the daily mirror in manchester and one to the police uh, and then a third letter was also sent um and then a tape and it was, it was as the letters were coming in and they came in over a period of months um the first one was kind of just dismissed. I mean, there's lots of lots of cranks writing in, and lots of hoaxes were getting sent. Um, so it was kind of dismissed initially, and then the second one came in, and then the third, and then the tape. And um, bit by bit, um, George and other senior detectives decided that actually there was just too much detail in these letters to have been written by um, somebody who didn't have first-hand knowledge of the attacks, i.e., the killer. But it's a fascinating aspect, and it's hard for us in 2022 to 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 appreciate this. That um, because of the we're so used to the internet now, so we can find out anything in an instant. But the internet didn't exist then, of course. And George was convinced that um, that these were genuine because it contained details of an attack, uh, a murder of a woman called Joan Harrison in Preston in 1975, and the writer of the letters was claiming them as his, his work, as the work of the Ripper. It ultimately proved to be that the Sutcliffe hadn't killed that, that woman. It was an unconnected murder. But 
Um, there were some details about that case um, in the letters that George was convinced that it had never been reported, never been published in the papers. Um, and also some details about one or two of the early murders that Sutcliffe did do that he was convinced hadn't been reported. Now, of course, now you could find that out in an instant. Within seconds, you could check, has this been in the press or not? Then it was such a hard effort. I mean, it was, it was still possible to check by going across to Lancashire, checking hard copies of old newspapers. Uh, but the just, police just didn't, didn't go through all that, that, that to that extent. So George became convinced this can only be written by the killer, but he was obviously wrong. But what that resulted was um, that all of the, all of the resources were sent north to to to, to Wearside, and the 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 order went out to all of the detectives working on the case that that if they interviewed any potential suspect, they had to get a, an example of his handwriting and also check check his accent. Did he have any connection with Sunderland? And um, if somebody gave some their handwriting and it didn't match the letter, or if they didn't have a Wearside accent, then they were discounted. And and this applied to Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe was interviewed nine times by the police before his arrest and in the later stages of the investigation uh, a couple of them uh, it, within a couple of them interviews he, he was asked for examples of his handwriting and, and it was obviously noted he had a Bradford Bingley accent and he was discarded because of it and it's just incredible that they put so many eggs in one basket and they, they were even they even brought on board a couple of linguist ex, linguistic experts from Yorkshire um, I think it was from Leeds University um, to analyze uh, this, the whole tapes and the letters. And they became convinced that there was a very strong possibility that, um, that, they, that it might be in the work of a super hoaxer, so-called because there were many hoaxes that afflicted the inquiry, but none of them resulted in the inquiry being, um, the direction of the inquiry being diverted. This one did, so it was, it was termed a super hoaxer. And these guys, the linguistic experts, were convinced that um, that it was the work of a hoaxer, not, not the killer. But, but the, the police were deaf to that. They wouldn't take on board even the, the work of the experts. And, and, and to the day of the arrest, um, they were convinced that he, 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 the killer was from Wearside. But one, one other interesting aspect is that Northumbria police, who obviously were running the Wearside end of the investigation, they were more sceptical. Um, the publicity posters that were put out by West Yorkshire police basically said to the public, you know, listen to this tape we think it's the voice of the killer and the handwriting is the handwriting of the killer northumbria worded their appeal posters differently they would sort of um put out um do you recognize this handwriting it couldn't be linked to the case please contact us. you know they were far more skeptical um and right to the end they didn't want to put everything in and the 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 Senior officers in Northumbria advise their detectives just, you know, we have to follow this line of inquiry, but, but be wary, you know, remain remain cautious. But George Oldfield was was all in that the killer was from Wearside. Amazing. And of course, more victims passed away because of that. Uh, I, I always find this case particularly fascinating. You've already mentioned that he was questioned on numerous occasions. We know about the Red Heron with the tapes and the letters coming from uh, from, from Wearside. Um, you know, we had many cases where you know, people managed to survive attacks and give pretty good descriptions. When you yeah. look at these, the various artists' impressions that were given about this guy, it's, you know, it, it just, it beggars belief that he, he wasn't caught earlier. And of course, when he was caught, he was caught by a fluke, really. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... um. It, those photo pictures, a great picture you put up there, and it shows that some of them are pretty good likenesses. But the um, the police didn't; um, they, they were reluctant to take on board some of the eyewitness accounts um, for a couple of reasons: some good, some awful. Um, they, they were skeptical at taking the testimony of anyone who'd suffered a severe head injury, and, and some 
women who did survive did have long-term consequences. So that's perhaps understandable. Um, less acceptable is that Marcella Claxton, who was a black woman um, who lived in Chapeltown, was attacked and survived. And um, the police didn't believe her purely on the basis of racism. You know, they, they were trying to convince her again and again and again that her attacker was black and she'd been attacked by a local man from Chapeltown. She kept insisting, no, um, he, he was white. This is a description. And they, would, they would never, ever took um, Marcella's cases to be um, involved in the series of attacks. And, and it, her, her case was only in, included um, once Sutcliffe was arrested and admitted it himself. So that was appalling, um, the, the way the police refused to accept her testimony. Uh, but yeah, as you say, winding on to January of 1981, um, January the 2nd, 1981, two beat bobbies in Sheffield were on um, were on a routine patrol. Uh, one of them was a sergeant, much more experienced. The other one was a PC who was just starting out. And as part of his mentoring role, the sergeant sort of said, let's have a troll of the um, tour of the red light district tonight. And the police at that time were very much in the in the way of um, arresting um, street sex workers. And he, and he said, let's go and see if anyone's working tonight so we can um, arrest them. And, and this will help teach you how to prepare a file for a soliciting charge at court. Um, they had a ride around, drive around the, the regular red light district in Sheffield. There was no one working that night. So they went to a, a, pr a private secluded um, street behind Sheffield Girl High, Girls High School. And there was one um, particular, it was a large detached house which had been converted into offices. And they found um, a car parked in the drive. And what was immediately um, obvious that there was something um, suspicious was the way it was parked. Sutcliffe had driven in, turned around and reversed up the drive. So his car was pointing out. So he clearly could make a, um, a quick escape. But of course, punters taking a, a, a woman, a sex worker up there, wouldn't park that way. They would park the other way around, pointing in for privacy. So the police immediately thought there was something up with this. Um, they also very quickly noticed that the tax date and the registration number didn't match. He'd stolen some number plates and was sort of driving on false plates. And um, so they, they interviewed him. Uh, he gave a false name that didn't match with the um, uh, with the details um, of the car. Uh, so very quickly, he had to sort of confess his real name. So him and the woman were taken that he was with at the time that he picked up that night. They were taken to a police um, station in Sheffield. And, um, and, and and he was interviewed, denied it all for many, many hours, but then ultimately realised the game was up and, and, and finally confessed. Um, and so after, after all these years and all these different inquiries, all these attacks, you know, the, the police finally had the um, finally had the Yorkshire Ripper. And as, yeah, that's, uh, those are the two guys um, that, 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 that arrested him. And, you know, after all them different inquiries, all them different detectives and experts and different avenues. It was just purely old fashioned beat bobbies on a routine patrol. Unbelievable, really, that, uh, you know, that was how he was arrested. And uh, the um, the feeling, the public feeling uh, was high. And um, I think we all remember, you know, the day that the Ripper was caught. Anyone of a certain age or vintage will remember it because as you quite aptly described him at the start of the interview, it was like the bogeyman of our times. And um, I think it made it all the more sinister when he was first led into the police station from the back of the van under a blanket. Yeah, absolutely. And the police were so desperate to get him into court for um, that first appearance that it was actually very late in the day. Obviously, most people, um, when they appear in magistrate's court, they're all, they're, they, they've got to report to the court at 10 a.m. for an appear through the morning. But this, this case was unique. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was, um, it was obviously January. It was dark. Um, it, was about, it was about half past four, five o'clock. 
and um and you can see there's some video footage on youtube it's of that moving video footage of that scene you can quite easily find it on youtube if you just search for it and um there's a huge crowd there and they're throwing insults they're shouting um at him and he's brought in uh, and, and as you say the fact that he's we still haven't seen him um sort of in, in, in the flesh so to speak you know his head was covered so it kind of increases the sort of like the the sinister the sinister nature of it um and it was a huge event globally really the, the police press office um uh yeah that's the picture was taken at a, a later court hearing i think or when he was brought out and there were the police press office um was 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 receiving calls from you know from America Australia this was this was a, a world event because um, it's, it's actually uh, I mean obviously there, there's a fair number of serial killers um, exist in America but it's, it's a very rare event for somebody with that number of victims to their name to be to be at large for that length of time I mean he's not he's not the most prolific serial killer that the country's ever known uh, Harold Shipman and potentially Dennis Nielsen have all had more victims but but of course, they um, and, and Fred West. But they, but the people like all oh, those three, the victims were were only known after their arrest. They were they were killing people, and it wasn't known at the time that they were actually killing people. That that they were at large. You know, Sutcliffe is unique in that sense that his tally of victims was sadly, you know. Um, totting up as, as he was still in large which, which increased the um the, the the threat that communities across the north um felt and, and as you say that's that's where that image of him being a modern day that that day's bogeyman did 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 reside in people's minds now obviously you've linked up on this book i'm the yorkshire ripback conversations with a killer with a lad called alfie james now alfie um went down a similar route to me he wrote to somebody behind bars uh the difference between alfie and i is i wrote to a gangster um he wrote to a serial killer what was his motivation i think it's 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 yeah to alfie's role in this is is, is fascinating really and I, and I i guess um his motivation is very very similar i'm sure to to to, to yours when you started this similar thing is just trying to get under the skin of, of of what makes these people tick um so alfie basically he's a, he's a very ordinary guy really he works at a factory he's got a, he's married he's got a couple of young kids and he but he, he he's a huge fan of true crime and, and and like a lot of people who are interested in that genre uh, that one of the main motivating factors for, for their interest is, is is understanding why why do people commit the most heinous crimes against each other and, and why do they do it again and again um against someone else rather why do they do it again and again um and um he'd read a number of books on the this issue and but he just kind of felt there was something a bit missing um you know books by ex-police officers lawyers medical professionals you know they're, they're okay so far as they go but he felt they didn't go that last step in in really explaining why these people do what they did so he just thought well actually i'll just i'll just write to them and ask them and he wrote to a few he wrote to ian brady he wrote to um a serial killer in america he wrote he wrote to Sutcliffe, and Sutcliffe simply was the one who replied the most readily um he got a few replies off brady but that relationship didn't really develop but so the relationship with Sutcliffe did Sutcliffe replied um quite cautiously at first but then alfie wrote back and that that developed and then um Sutcliffe eventually trusted him enough to place him on the list of people who he was able to phone and and it got to the stage where there was a weekly phone call from um Sutcliffe to Alfie at home um from Broadmoor and then ultimately he trusted him enough for it to add him to his list of visitors so Alfie would go and visit him in Broadmoor and and um and he you know very um in a very sort of a, a efficient um a professional kind of manner uh, Alfie kept all this material and over many many years he collated hundreds of letters notes from all these phone calls hundreds of phone calls and, and dozens of face-to-face -face meetings 
Um, and, you know, I basically got as close to Sutcliffe as, as anyone ever has done outside of his the inner circle of his, of his closest family. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a fascinating story and a fascinating uh, book as well. I, I guess I've got to ask you the question you would ask me, I guess, with, with the craze story. Um, and, you know, is it right to give somebody like Peter Sutcliffe a platform and do a book using his words? I mean, the... The, the one thing I think we always have to remember, and it's a it's a respectable thing, I, I do it all the time when I'm covering true crime on this channel, is to pay tribute to the victims. And I'd like to dedicate this podcast to the, the victims and, and to the families who've had to suffer. But um, yeah, getting back to the question, you know, is it is it right, do you think? Yeah, it's it's an absolute valid question, and, and and it's one that has to be asked. Um, and 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 it's it was it was in the um, it was very much in the forefront of my mind, um, researching the book and then writing it. And I, I thought long and hard uh, before we started on this project as whether um, whether it was the right thing to do. And I, and I and I was conscious that some people would perhaps um, object to it, and you know, completely accepting of that um, that opinion. The reason I thought that. Um, that it was something that I wanted to press on with was, but it was a fact. It was a factor of the um, the Ripper story, which had never been told. You know, the, the book that extent of extensive input from him about all aspects of his life had never been written. It, it, um, and so I thought that was that was a valid addition, uh, valuable addition to the sort of the, the body of work that had been written about him. Um, but but it but, but I think that had to be done with um, uh, uh, making sure that he, we had to make sure that his wasn't the only voice within that story the, the the victim's voice had to be there as well and i, I hopefully i've achieved that we I've, I've made made a big effort to to tell all of their stories in a you know in a three-dimensional fashion to give their background to explain you know how some of them who ended up in, in awful situations in their lives how how they ended up through no fault of their own in, in that situation which sadly forced them their paths to cross with Sutcliffe's path and meant they were ended up as his victims and and i think as long as long as um you know, as long, I think as long as as, as anyone who, who sort of writes a true crime book or, or, or embarks on this kind of project in relation to the river, as long as you don't don't forget the victims and make sure their voices are heard as well, then you know, I, I felt that was um, that, that was an okay path to take. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it said on on many a platform, uh, the best thing to come out of COVID was the death of Peter Sutcliffe. Of course, he passed away thirteenth of November, twenty twenty, in Durham in the University Hospital um and you know i don't think there was many tears shed robert yeah you're absolutely right you know i mean i i am um, I'm, I'm pretty close to the um the neil jackson the um the, the the son of um his second victim emily jackson and i remember speaking to neil quite soon after that event and he he for one was you know i, I don't know if celebrating is the right word or not but um but 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 you're right not many people would have mourned the passing of of peter Sutcliffe. um as i say um you're right he, yeah, he died of he'd, he'd had serious health problems over many years he had diabetes had a heart condition he had eye issues he was almost blind and um had angina and um and when the pandemic hit visiting at franklin stopped people could no longer go in to see him lockdown care and when lockdown was eased um visiting started up again but he was he, he refused to have anyone in visiting him he was obsessed with the idea that that covid was a killer disease and he, he thought he would get it and proved to be his prediction came true and he developed um, a heart condition which needed him to go into the university hospital of durham in in early november 2020 and um and, and and he was in and out of hospital over a couple of days and then as a result of that he um he tested positive for covid and and died shortly afterwards yeah. is it true that uh, some of his ashes were sent to two super fans 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a there was a couple. Um, Alfie Alfie isn't one of them. He never received any of the ashes. But a, but a couple of the um, a couple of people who had also written to him um, received um, some ashes. I think the ashes were sent to his brother Mick, and then he sent them on to some of these people, which um, you know, which is a which is a. a <laughs> strange aspect I, I kind of feel but um you know that's um and i suppose that leads into sort of the, you know the question people some people have asked of alfie really you know there's the idea of why would anyone write to a serial killer you know alfie's motivation was was um it was was purely honorable in my, in my view and they simply wanted to understand what what made um sutcliffe tick and just because alfie isn't a trained criminologist or a psychiatrist don't mean to say he doesn't have the the same sort of like um right i suppose to try and discover these things um but um, somebody who then sort of like collects artifacts in that way is um, whether that that's their still interest in the same kind of motivation or there's something more. I don't, I don't know, but it's yeah, it's a bit of a strange aspect that. So tell us about the the book. Where can people get it? It's on sale now. How can people order a copy? So yeah, <clears throat> the book was published in. <clears throat> excuse me, the book was published in March. It's been out a couple of months now. It's it's doing great, we think, um, and it's available obviously on amazon <coughs> excuse me obviously on amazon it's in um, waterstones as well and um and, and a very variety and, and asda you can get it in asda and uh, a variety of other websites as well so it's um it, yeah, it's doing great and um it, it's um so yeah if any, anyone's interested in this case then it's a you know it's, a, <coughs> it's the most in-depth biography of him really and, and and the fascinating aspect of it different to any other book that's ever been written is that the fact that his voice is there and he responds to it you know as well as being able to describe his attacks and his childhood is yeah but he responds to every theory about why why he turned into a serial killer himself and gives his own theories and his own thoughts so it is a it is a, another dimension which has never been written before fascinating insight to the book i'm the yorkshire ripper conversations with a killer written by robin perry and alfie james i'll stick the links below if you want to go and order a copy for yourself or for somebody else please do robin as always absolute pleasure to speak to you mate take take care thanks very much a good luck thanks, with the book. Mitch. thanks very much and thanks again for having me on really appreciate it bye-bye cheers